I just want to start off by saying thank you uh, and thanking each and every one of you. It's been my joy to prepare messages each week and to get up here um, and present those messages. I know I, I kind of feel bad at times that it's I just have 30 minutes <laughs> up here. Um, there's a lot more going through the Word of God that, that I study, and some of the stuff is just, for me, things that I'll carry into eternity. Um, but it's, it really is my joy in, in presenting what the Lord has laid on my heart. Uh, so far this year, I was looking back in, in my notes, and it's been 25 messages so far this year um, that I've had the privilege of, of presenting to St. James Gospel Chapel, and that doesn't include the other churches that I've gone and spoken at. And so I, I love doing this. I know this is what the Lord has called me to. And so I thank you for the words of encouragement. Uh, and it, it brings me joy when, when I hear and talk to people who have been reading along um, as we go through the various series that we've been going through to see how it's transformed people, how um, people are excited about it. That brings me great joy. That's my role as a teacher that's my responsibility as a teacher it's not to just get up in front of you and list a bunch of things and have you go on your way and live life the same that you've been living it my responsibility before the lord is to preach christ and that's what i try to do week in and week out is to preach christ crucified um, and so thank you to everyone who has been reading along praying for me encouraging me um, it really means a lot Ben Sutton, he actually warned me as I started to get into speaking years back. Uh, he's gone to be with the Lord now, but he, he had warned me, he said, when you're preaching Christ from the word of God, Satan is going to oppose you. And he said, you'll watch for it and wait for it, but every time that you go to prepare a message, something will come up, no matter what, without fail. And sure enough, this yesterday, something came up. Uh, that would easily detract from me studying the Word of God. Um, and without fail, it's been every single week that I've been preparing a message, something else comes up. Uh, and Ash and I were talking about it yesterday in the afternoon when, when this thing came up. And I said, I just looked at her, I said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, <laughs> but against powers, against principalities, <laughs> against the dark forces of this world. Satan doesn't want this message to get out. Satan doesn't want the word of God to be opened in assemblies. He wants it just like that church that I mentioned before to just be a time where we just share the goodness of this world. Satan doesn't want the name of Christ to be mentioned. And he'll do anything that he can to discourage and to discredit. And without fail. And, and I just... Ben Sutton, every, every week that I prepare a message, his, his voice is ringing in my head. Just look for it. Wait for it. Satan will oppose. And it's why I've been so firm on stating that fact that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. What do we wrestle against? A defeated foe. That's how it should be read. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against a defeated foe. And that's how Paul treats it in the book of Colossians. That's how it should be read. Do you know why Paul didn't get discouraged and why he didn't give up in prison as he wrestled and as he fought? He could see Christ's victory in full. He could see the eternal implications of the cross. That's why he didn't get discouraged. 
Because he saw the eternal implications of the cross. He saw that the cross was much more than just something that is temporary. Well, it's something that is eternal. The sacrifice that Christ made is eternal. And there's been a purpose in every passage and every series that we have studied over the last couple of years. My first series that I did here, we started in the book of Revelation. We did Revelation chapter 1 to chapter 5. We took a look at the risen Christ to realize that we don't worship a dead Savior, but one who rose triumphant. And then we looked at the instruction for the churches in the book of Revelation and how to apply it to not only our church, but our lives as well. And so we saw Christ. We began our focus on Christ. And in that case, the risen Christ. And I haven't strayed very far from that. We then saw in Esther how God works in ways that we don't expect. That even though there's a voice that says, God can't hear you, you're just praying to nothing. That's the voice in the world. God can't hear you. God doesn't exist. Look after yourself and your own interests. Because God isn't there. But we saw in the book of Esther that God does hear, that God is alive. And although at times it appears that God is nowhere to be found, he is in fact so intertwined in our lives and acts at times and in ways that we don't see. And so we were reminded in that series to look back on our lives and see how Christ moved in our lives, how he was at work and he is at work, and that was to drive us forward in our lives for Christ. And then we saw the future age in Revelation 19 to 21. How judgment is coming to this world, but how ultimately Christ will reign and reign supreme. We needed to look forward and see, just like Paul does, of Christ's victory. To realize that it's Christ who wins the victory. It's not the devil. It's not those powers. And so why have we studied all these passages? Because there will be times, there will be things, people, opportunities that come up in your life, circumstances that come up, that will try their hardest to draw you away from Christ. And in those times, we need to be like Paul, ultimately like Christ, and say, not my will, but thine be done. But we need to have a full understanding of Christ, Christ past, Christ present, and Christ future, to realize that we are his that we are secure in Christ, and that he is worth following completely. So that's been the purpose over these last couple of years. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, and this will be the last time that we read through this chapter in its entirety. Colossians chapter 1, reading from verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come unto you, as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit." as it doth also in you, since the day you heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth. As ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. For this cause we also, 
Since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you, that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If you continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God even the mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. And Paul is writing this book from prison. And events, of life, events in his life have brought him to this point. Why? Because of his preaching of the gospel. That's why he's in prison. Because he was preaching Christ. A man called Epaphras, meet him here in Colossians 1, and we find out more about him in Colossians 4. Epaphras makes a journey of over 2,000 kilometers to meet with Paul, to bring him a message and bring him news about the church at Colossae. He lets Paul know how things are going. And it's a good report, and it causes Paul to pray earnestly for the believers that they would be further strengthened in their faith, that they would be further encouraged in the Lord, and that they would work more towards serving Christ. And therein lay a challenge for us to be praying for our church and celebrating the working of faith. To not just pray in bad times, but to pray in good times, to celebrate the things that the Lord has done. And we did that this past Wednesday at prayer meeting. I wish everybody could have been there. It was an amazing meeting. Just giving thanks to the Lord for what he has done. <laughs> for answered prayer. For seeing spiritual growth. 
for seeing the Lord move in the lives of the believers here. It's wonderful to give thanks to the Lord. And so that was the challenge for us as Paul gives thanks. Right from verse 3, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Do we do that? Do we give thanks to the Lord for our brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we pray constantly for each other? That was the challenge. Now Epaphras also brings a report that teachers have entered the church and are saying that Jesus is not God. That Christ cannot save. And they're teaching a works-based salvation. And introducing very strange ideas, namely praying to and the worship of angels. We read that later on in the book of Colossians in chapter 2. And so Paul pens this letter. And he writes it as a response to Epaphras, but also as a letter to not only the church at Colossae, but to the churches in the region. Later on in the book of Colossians, he says, hand this off. Send this letter along. The other churches need to read it. And the amazing thing is we're reading it today. (laughs) It still rings true today. It is the living, breathing word of God. The instruction that Paul has for the church there is still very relevant for us here today. It's amazing. As he writes, as Paul writes this letter, and you read through it and you get the language and the way that Paul is writing it, He's essentially cleansing the minds and the hearts of the believers at Colossae. And he's pointing them towards the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ rather than attacking the heresies directly. And I think it's a pattern that we should look at and learn from. Because too often we go after the issues. We go after the issues directly, almost forgetting what the base is. Instead, we should be like Paul and simply show the world Christ whether in speech or whether in actions, whether how we live. We forget that it's the Holy Spirit that does the conviction, not us. Right? Oftentimes we go after specific things and try and point those out. And I think it's important and and there's scriptural basis for approaching uh, situations like that. But Paul here is bringing to attention to the believers at Colossae saying, You know, there's all this stuff going on, but I'm going to show you Christ. And in Christ, you're going to find the answers to every question and every issue that's coming up. It's in him alone. And so it's a reminder for us that we need to look at Christ. We need to look and see the perfect example, not only of his life here on earth, but through the entire written word of God. This is the word and Christ is the word. (laughs) We need to get to know Christ. Paul is reminding them there. Now let's come in at verse 24 of Colossians chapter 1. And I don't think we'll get past this verse, um, but we're going to end our study in Colossians 1. Verse 24, Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you. Or it could be read, and other translations have it. Uh, the ESV especially is, is a little easier Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. It's kind of a strange verse, isn't it? It's hard to know sort of what what to do with it. And the reason that I say that is because almost everyone does the complete opposite. They grumble when they suffer and they ask God, why? Why is this happening to me? Why am I going through this right now? That's the question. Why, God? Why are you putting me through this? 
and they don't rejoice. You might ask, well, you know, what's wrong with Paul? Like, is something wrong with Paul in here? He's saying he's rejoicing in suffering. He's rejoicing in affliction. Like, is this guy crazy? Is this guy crazy? But you see, the biblical pattern of life is so radical and so different from the way that the world lives that very few Christians actually live it out. Paul knows what joy in the Lord is. He knows that intimately. And he knows that the joy in the Lord is not just when things are going well in your life, but the joy of the Lord is to be a constant thing in good times and in bad times. That as you're going through affliction, as you're going through suffering, what does Paul say? We're to joy in the Lord. We're to find satisfaction in him, not in the outcome of what we're going through, but in Christ and Christ alone. The joy of the Lord will be your strength through choices that nobody understands. Just look at Paul. I mean, he was beaten and tossed out of a city and he went right back in. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense at all. But he had the joy in the Lord. Joy was found in the Lord. And it's become a normal thing and sort of a silent sin for many Christians to not joy in the Lord through opposition. Sean spoke on this actually last week in the evening about grumbling and being angry and how that's sort of become a silent sin for the church, that we don't address it, that we're not to be angry, we're not to grumble at things. And Paul here highlights it again. He says, I joy I'm not grumbling in this. I'm not angry that the Lord has placed me here. I, like He's in prison right now. It wouldn't be easy to be joyful and happy and singing, but Paul is. Why is that? If for some reason you don't think Paul is qualified enough to say what he says here in verse 22, that he joys in affliction and say, well, Paul, that's you. That's, that's you. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know the hardship that I'm going through right now. It's impossible for me to have joy. I want you to read with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Reading from verse 24. And I'm reading from the ESV because I think it just renders it a little easier for us to understand and a little better. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 24. Here's Paul's qualifications for why he can say and command us joy in your sufferings. Verse 24, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. If there was anyone qualified enough to say that we should joy in affliction, it is Paul. And Paul is just a mirror of Christ. What does it say in Mark chapter 8, verse 35? It says, for whosoever wishes to save his life will lose it, ultimately. If you're self-centered, if you're looking at yourself, you're eventually going to lose your life. What does it say? But whosoever 
loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Spent for Christ. The path of salvation is the path of losing one's life for the sake of the gospel. That's what it is. Losing oneself for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ. That's what the road of salvation is. We saw this last week. To walk worthy of the Lord in verse 10 of Colossians 1. To walk worthy of the Lord means to prefer his will above your own. To joy in your affliction because you accept the fact that the Lord knows a lot better than you do what the final working of that trial will be. You see, we, we see things moment by moment. Right? I'm dictated. You know, I have about eight minutes left. I'm dictated by that little second hand spinning around that clock up there. We see moment by moment. Christ sees eternally. Why would I put my trust in myself when all I know is right now? I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't. I can plan for tomorrow, I guess. You know, I plan to wake up in the morning to go to work because it's a work day and I'm supposed to be there. Although with my job, I could work from home and it would be okay. But, uh, you know, we can plan things, but we only see moment by moment. Christ sees eternally. John Piper and I, and I quote him fairly often, um, but he says in, in terms of, he was speaking one time on suffering for the glory of God, uh, and he says this, he says, the truth of suffering for the glory of God applies to everyone, not just Paul. And the reason this truth finds so little echo in the American church is because we have so domesticated the word godliness, so much so that we scarcely can begin to comprehend what Paul meant by it. Godliness is limited to reading your Bible, going to church, and keeping the commandments. But that's not all there is to godliness because the Pharisees did all those things. Godliness is so being ravished by God, so satisfied by God, so filled with God, so driven by Jesus that you live in a way that the only explanation for your life is the promise of God raising you from the dead. That's powerful. <laughs> we will never be Christ's church until we choose to take risks that can only be explained by the resurrection from the dead. And Paul touches on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he says, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then we are of most men, what, miserable. We've wasted our life if there's no resurrection from the dead. Why? Number one, because then Christ hasn't risen from the dead. And our salvation is completely in vain. <laughs> there's no point in following Christ who, if there was no resurrection from the dead, is still in the grave. And number two, then living a sacrificial life to the point of possible death has no meaning at all. There's no purpose in it anymore. Paul is saying in this, in verse 24 of Colossians chapter 1, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and everything that he carries along with that. What Paul is saying is that I am willing to die for Christ because I know that one day I will be raised. I'm willing to be spent for Christ because one day I will be raised from the dead if Christ doesn't return in my lifetime or I will be translated if he calls me home. I will joy in my affliction because I know that eternity with Christ is waiting for me. 
That's what Paul knows, and that's what Paul understands, that eternity is waiting for him. Brothers and sisters in Christ, why do we waste the time that we have on our own vain ideas and ambitions? Why do we worry what people will think and take baby steps because of it? Why do we question God for the choices that he makes when, again, he sees eternally and we see moment by moment? Why would we do that? Randy Alcorn, uh, a writer and and speaker uh, in the States, he once said, when you came to Christ, you surrendered your entire self, including your body, to God. No longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. He paid the ultimate price for it, his shed blood. You don't get to take that back. Right? But so often, we treat salvation as a get-out-of-hell-free card. And say, hey, you know, I've got my salvation, eternity, you know, my eternal state is everything's in order. And right now, I'm just going to take everything else back. Give me my life back, and I'm going to live however I want to live. I'm going to do whatever I want to do in this life. But Paul is reminding the believers at Colossae through the entire book of Colossians that you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. You've been bought with a price. You are not your own. We are to live a Christ-centered, a Christ-filled, a Christ-fulfilling life. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, it says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully, completely, absolutely on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, we needed to understand that eternity is waiting for us before getting to this series. Why do I look at Christ? Because eternity is waiting. Because Christ in eternity is waiting The second part of verse 24, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and the second part here, and fill up that which is behind, or that which is, uh, a better word would be lacking, uh, which some translations might have, that which is lacking of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Now, at first glance, this section is kind of strange, and it would seem like if you just read it straightforward, it seemed that somehow Paul is filling up something that Christ couldn't do. So, Christ's sacrifice, it seems in this, in this passage that, okay, it was lacking something and Paul is completing it or finishing it or he's doing something that it's filling up. However, that's not the case. The context of this section from verse 24 to 29 has to do with the church. It's not dealing with salvation or the work of the cross. In verse 28, we see the end result of why Paul is rejoicing in his afflictions. It's for the perfection of the saints. Because he sees the end goal. He sees the working of the Lord Jesus Christ in the lives of the believers. And he sees to present everyone perfect in Christ. That's the end goal, that we might all be like Christ. He is doing all these things for the church of God. So in this context, what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ is is not that Christ's sacrifice is deficient in worth or in merit, as though it could not sufficiently cover the sins of all who believe. Rather, what is lacking 
is that the infinite value of Christ's afflictions are not known completely in the world. There's still a mystery, and Paul alludes to this, hidden, as Paul shows, to most people. And God's intention is that the mystery be revealed and extended to all the Gentiles so that it covers the entire world, that this message, this news of salvation. So the afflictions are lacking in the sense that they are not seen and known among all the nations. Philippians chapter 2, verse 30 has a very similar passage that uses these words and the combination that they are here, filling up and lacking. The Philippian believers had sent Epaphroditus to take care of Paul's needs because they couldn't do it themselves. Epaphroditus risks his, his life in service to Paul. He actually almost dies. He gets very sick and almost dies. So Epaphroditus was filling up what they could not do, namely go to Paul. In much the same way, Christ has prepared an offering for the world by suffering and dying for sinners. It is full and lacking in nothing, and I want to emphasize that. It is full and lacking in nothing. Except for one thing, a personal presentation by Christ himself to the nations of the world. God's answer to this lack is to call the people of Christ, people like Paul, people like you, to present the afflictions of Christ to the world. God doesn't have to use us, but by his grace he does to win sinners to Christ. We are to be like Christ in everything that we do so that people see Christ in us as we suffer, as we rejoice, and as we simply exist in this world that people would see Christ and not us. Here Paul highlights his own experience in verse 24. That as he suffers afflictions, people would recognize the afflictions that Christ suffered. That the message would therefore be delivered. That's what he's saying here. He's not adding to the salvation found in Christ. Paul's already solidified the point that we're saved through Christ and through the work that he has done and him alone. Christ is sufficiently sufficient. <laughs> it's on him. It's not on Paul, but Paul is saying, by my suffering, the world sees the suffering, the affliction of Christ, and therefore the message goes out. The message is proclaimed by just the way that I live my life. And Paul sets quite the precedence, precedence for us to joy in our afflictions and to be completely and absolutely spent for Christ. You see, to joy in our afflictions means that we are focusing on Christ. That's what it means. To be angry and upset at what we're going through, however difficult it might be. And there are difficult situations in life. I've been through a lot. There are difficult things that come up in life. I don't want to excuse that and say that everything is easy, because it's not. But to be angry and upset at what we're going through, however difficult it might be, is to not correctly display the magnificence of Christ. And in fact, if we are grumbling, angry, annoyed, then not only will our testimony be destroyed, but our local church will suffer as well. Paul was joyful because he knew what he was going through because he knew he was going through everything for not only Christ, but for the benefit of the church. 
He was selfless. He was being further conformed to the image of Christ. And that's very evident here. He was selfless. It's been my prayer throughout this entire series that we might all catch a glimpse of what it means to live a Christ-filled life. That we wouldn't fall into the temptation to live a life like the rest of the world does. But that we might know what it means to be spent for Christ. That we might know what it means to joy in the Lord. To joy in our salvation. To realize that the penalty for our sin, the penalty for everything that we have done wrong, has been paid by the sacrifice, by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's ultimately what Paul is talking about here. He's saying Christ died for you. Joy in your affliction. Joy in him day by day. Find your satisfaction solely in him and only in him. Because he is everything. And I'll end with the theme verse of this entire series, and it's been Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If ye then be risen with Christ... If you have put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and trusted him fully and completely, what does Paul say that we should do? If ye then be risen with Christ, those who have put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the believers, the saints, those in the kingdom of light, for those, he says, seek those things which are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Seek those things. Seek Christ. Seek after him, not the things of this world at all. Because everything that you see around you is temporary, but Christ is eternal. Christ is enough. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we were able to open up your word. We thank you for this series, how Paul, as he would write to the Colossian believers a very long time ago, Lord, but how it's very applicable to us today to constantly be looking to Christ, to find our joy, our satisfaction, our hope in him. Father, we know how messed up this world is, and we just see a small glimpse in our own lives day to day. We watch the news. We see what goes on in the world. There is no hope here. There is no hope found in this world. Father, we look to you. We look to you. We thank you for who you are, for what you have done how you sent your only begotten Son to die in our place. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he paid the penalty, that he took upon himself our sin, our guilt, our humiliation, what we had done wrong, and he paid the ultimate price for it. Might we live lives according to your will, according to your way, in light of what Christ has done for us. Might we, like Paul, joy in our afflictions and sufferings. Might the good times and the bad times be marked by service to Christ and that the world might see that, that the world might recognize that we joy in spite of the circumstances around us and that they might see Christ in us and through us. Father, we pray that we might be pillars for Christ, that we might be lights in this dark world. Show us what it means to live a Christ-filled life. Show us what it means to be spent for Christ. So we pray all these things in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.